out of the shotgun again. This crowd roaring. Takes the snap. Sets up. Sets up. Throws one over the net. Intercepted. Marlon Jackson. Marlon's got it. We're going to the Super Bowl. Listening to the Hoosier State Sports Show with Adam and Joey. Blood is running down my face, tears are forming in my eyes. Father always told me pain is temporary, keep in stride. Lift your head up, don't you cry. Fighters always will survive. That hurt you feel inside can only mean that you're alive. Keep your head down and digging. God will provide you vision and lead you where you need to be. If you just shut up and listen. Hello, everybody, and welcome back once again to the Hoosier State Sports Show. My name is Joey. As always, I'm joined by my friend Adam. Adam, how are you doing today? Well, it's been kind of a rough day, but I'm glad to be home now. And obviously, I've got the voice bug that you had last week, so we're going to have to try to manage it and just see how it all goes. Yeah, definitely feel for you. Obviously, like you said, I was just there and definitely was a rough couple days. Hopefully, you start feeling better soon. But as we said last week, life goes on. So let's we got a lot of stuff to get to, so let's get trekking. What do you say? Absolutely. Sounds like a plan. You want to let everyone know what we're going to talk about today? Yeah, so this week we're going to recap the Colts versus Bears game on Saturday. Jonathan Taylor has been given permission to seek a trade from the team. Tyrese Halliburton, and we have a Team USA update from him for this past week. And then finally, a few IU basketball and football updates as we get ready to head into the season. Absolutely. Should be a pretty good episode. So I guess we should just start with the Colts and Obviously, the most pressing thing with the Colts right now out in the media outlets is the Jonathan Taylor news. But before we get to that, we do have a preseason game to recap. As you mentioned, the Colts played the Bears on Saturday, and the Colts actually won that game by a score of 24-17. And before we get into breaking down the game, Adam, Anthony Richardson did not play in that game. Do you have any thoughts on that decision? Well, I mean, for me, I know that you and I might – be on differing wavelengths on this and we kind of touched on it when we were talking on Saturday about it but I'm okay with the decision for him not to play and I know a lot of people are like well he needs the reps and he needs the starts I'd like to think that he had a good amount of starting reps this week against the Bears defense and practice and certainly you know I, I get that it's not the same as game experience and whatnot but I think that him not playing is a testament to the confidence the team has in how ready he is. Otherwise, I'm kind of with you, and I'm sure you'll allude to this in a second, on unless he's ready, he should have played in the game. But with that, I'm going to defer to you and get your thoughts as well. Well, like you mentioned, we're kind of on different wavelengths here. I don't understand the decision one bit. And when I even myself, when I first started thinking this, because obviously you and I were at that game Saturday evening. Yeah. And my initial thing was, man, this sucks. We're not going to get to see Anthony Richardson, you know, and we're here. And I thought maybe that's what was driving my feelings towards not understanding this decision not to play him. But the more I like logically thought about it, and I and this is the way I put it to you. Anthony Richardson's number one downfall going into the draft this year was his lack of experience. He played 13 games in college. That is by far less than C.J. Stroud or Bryce Young, who, I might add, both of which had plenty of playing time this past weekend in their respective games. Not to mention, you have the Chiefs with Patrick Mahomes playing the entire first half of their preseason game. And this is a team that has just come off of winning the Super Bowl. So 
I, I understand. I do not wanting to take those unnecessary risks and not wanting to get them hurt. And I understand the point you made if they had those joint practices with the bears this week. And I understand that is a lot of, you know, they put them in a lot of game situations, you know, four minute drill, two minute drill, red zone, you name it. But at the end of the day, if the biggest thing Richardson needs to be ready for the season is reps, just because you have those joint practices doesn't mean you can't get him out there for at least a drive or two in the game. Now, I do know today Shane Steichen announced Anthony Richardson will start this Thursday in that preseason game against the Eagles. So it'd be interesting to see how much he plays there. But either way, if you have the opportunity to get him these reps in the preseason, then I don't understand why you're not taking that. Well, something else we got to think about, too, is, you know, like we had heard earlier in the day on Saturday that Justin Fields and a select number of starters for the Bears weren't going to play either. And so when you start making lineups and things, I, I think, you know, the Bears also made the right call. You start thinking about the style of quarterbacks that we each have. And there's a common denominator there of you're running balls. You don't want to take the risks. And, you know, you alluded to it, you know, his la- his biggest lack of, you know, flaws or whatever you want to call it is you're right. He's had 13 games of starting experience, but I'm not going to call that a knock on him at this point, because, you know, many other college players come out and play one year at a university. Prime example is going to be if Kyle McCord at Ohio state wins the starting job, he's starting one year and then he's going to the NFL. And, you know, I think a lot can be said, like you said, you know, you value that starting experience. You want players that have been put in these situations. And again, I think the Colts drafted Richardson again, as a reminder to everyone, not for what he has done, but for what he can bring. The intangibles are there. The size is there. The capability is there. I don't think he needs this game to prove that. And I will say, you know, cause we talked about it. His first preseason game wasn't great. And, you know, that is a knock on him. It's like, you know, you want to start him. And you brought up the great point about Mahomes and how he got to play this past week. But I think each team's style is different. And I will say, if the Bears would have started fields and whatnot, I think that might have changed it. But my other line of thinking is that because, again, you have a short week, you're playing Thursday night, I think that also played into that decision not to play him. And I will and I will admit, and when I wrote my article, I thought Richardson was going to play. So it threw me for a loop as well. So I would expect him to get a decent amount of playing time in this game. And I will say this much. If the Colts don't play him in this next game against the Eagles, who went to the NFC Championship, and he's not getting those reps, I would start to have concerns at that point. I I think there's confidence in your player, but if you get cocky and overconfident with what Richardson is and you don't give him enough practice before, we could be in trouble before the season begins. Yeah, and I guess I don't want to spend too much time on this because we do have the actual game itself and the Jonathan Taylor news to get to, but just to kind of close it off on my end, I understand everything that you just said, and you made the point where, there was nothing he had to prove in this game because we, we all know that he was drafted for what he can be and what not what he has done, and I agree with that. But my one argument is, as you mentioned, the intangibles, the athleticism, you know, all this God-given stuff that he has. The thing that he was and is still lacking is honing in on, on the fundamentals, the, you know, 
the way you step back, the three step back. And I don't know about in Florida. I don't even know how often he took snaps under center. I'm sure they were in shotgun the majority of the time, but these are just all things that I'm taking into consideration that I think really means he should have played at least a couple drives, not to mention the fact this is the only preseason game in front of your home crowd. And you made the good point of, you know, there's the four, four or five days, whatever it is in between that game and the game coming up against the Eagles on Thursday. And I guess just as a fan, not so much as somebody actually involved with the team, if I was to pick one of those two games for Richardson to get the playing time, it would be at home in front of his home fans. But like I said, at the end of the day, it's not a huge deal. And it's not like I went home crying anything or about it or anything, but I just thought it was frustrating as a whole that the guy that you need to get the experience, you did not take the chance to put him out there for even a drive in front of the home team, but it is what it is. Right, Adam. Yeah. And I would agree with that as well. I think at the end of the day, you know, I think the problem is, you know, and I think many Colts fan can, fans feel this way. I don't think it's the issue of him not playing because he's not ready. I think it's the issue of, you know, he didn't play at all. You know, people pay to go to these games. And I mean, I, I mean, if you remember looking in the crowd in that game on Saturday, you might, you might have, and I'm going to say this generously, for a sold out game, it felt like only half the crowd was actually there. I think as soon as people heard that Richardson wasn't starting, it's like, what's the point? So, you know, I think that's a major issue for the team. You know, you come out and want to see that this high prospect, you want to see how he does at home, but then, you know, you don't get it. So I can, I'm going to say, I understand where people are overwhelmed about the whole thing. And that leads to another excellent point that, that Kent Sterling actually made on his show. You know, he alluded to the fact that on Friday when, which is when Colts wrapped up camp in Graham park for basically the first time throughout all of training camp, Shane Steichen did not have a press conference to end the day. And one of the main reasons people think is because he was going to be fielded with the questions of does Anthony Richardson play tomorrow on Saturday night? And he wasn't willing to give an answer to that. And Kent Sterling made the excellent point that at the very least, Shane Steichen or someone involved with the team could have said, you know, beforehand that Shane or that Anthony Richardson will not be playing, you know, and, you and I, like I said, you and I were there, Adam, and it was like 15 minutes before kickoff. They send Jeffrey Gorman down on the field to do like his 15 minute before game updates where he talks about the things to watch and stuff. And that's when I think for the first time publicly, it was announced that he wasn't going to be playing that game 15 minutes before the game. Yeah. And I guess if there's anything to take issue with, it's not so much the fact that he didn't play. It's the fact that nobody let any of the, you know, any of the fans know until you know, 15 minutes before kickoff. But well, just to wrap that up, I was going to say, you know, but it goes back to that point that I just made. If you tell all these people that he's not playing, they're not going to show up. So I think that's the difference. I think the Colts might have waited as part of it for a money standpoint. You let people on to believe he's going to play. I mean, like I said, that was a sold out game. So I, I do think it was a little bit selfish. But, you know, at the end of the day, you know, it is what it is. We're not going to cry over it. It, it. It's just something we got to move on from. Yeah, absolutely. And speaking of moving on and speaking of quarterbacks, let's take a look at the two quarterbacks that did play Saturday <clears throat> night against the Bears. And really, Adam, they both looked pretty good. Minshew finished his night with going 13 out of 15 for 107 yards and one touchdown. And this 
this was probably the best Minshew's looked all off season, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, passer rating well over 100, only two incompletions. Really looked like he was poised. Now, granted, he was going against, as you mentioned, the second the second string of the Bears because none of their starters played either. And then Ellinger came in, I think, near the end of the first half and played the rest of the game. And it was a typical Sam Ellinger game in preseason. Finished the game 9 of 14 in passing for 124 yards. And he also added 60 yards on the ground on eight carries and a rushing touchdown. And it was Sam Ellinger that led the Colts to that that uh, lead-changing touchdown towards the end of the game. So... I don't know about you, Adam. I know we left a little early and we listened to the ending in the in the car, but even for being a preseason, that ending was pretty exciting, and it got us yeah. kind of pumped up in the car ride home. Absolutely. And, you know, I know one of the things that for me is I look at their, their play is, you know, I think they've progressively gotten better as the preseason continues to kind of evolve. But, you know, I was, I'll admit, I was very surprised at Ellinger's performance because he really, really struggled last week. And, you know, Minshew this year or this week also, he didn't get sacked a whole bunch. So he was able to kind of show what he could do, which kind of goes back to, I think, what people were hoping for, that it's like either Minshew or Richardson was going to be ready to go. So I will say I think we are in much better hands with backup quarterback as this season preseason wraps up than last year. Oh, absolutely. I agree with you there. And then moving on with the game, let's take a look at the receivers. This was interesting, Adam. The two leading receivers for the Colts on Saturday were a pair of guys that had been with the teams for a matter of hours and not days. And, of course, that's in form of former second-round pick from the Steelers, James Washington, who signed with the Colts You know, just a day or two leading up to that game. He only had one catch, but it was a 42-yarder, 42-yarder hauled in from Sam Ellinger, and that 42 yards was the leading receiver for the Colts on the night. And then also... DJ Montgomery, who spent his spring playing for in the USFL, he caught two passes for 39 yards, which was good for the second highest receiver in terms of yards for the Colts. And like I said, a pair of guys who signed with the Colts really the day or two leading up to the game. How how surprised were you that these are the two names that you know were at the top of that receiving list for the Colts? If I'm being completely honest, I don't think I saw this coming because, you know, we talked about it before the game and I wrote about it in my article. I thought Mike Strawn was going to come on strong, quite literally, and, you know, have a game to kind of prove to people why he deserved to stay on the team. But, you know, I never found out where he was, find anything on if he was hurt or not. I know you had alluded to it. And so, you know, these being the two names – I think they might have solidified their chances to stay on the roster. And I think this week will kind of really prove interesting for them because I think the roles are now reversed. I I think Strawn is probably as good as gone. But these two, I think, certainly deserve another week to try to prove themselves. And just a couple other names to highlight in the receiving department. Will Mallory, of course, the tight end, finished with two yards or two receptions and 29 yards. So it's nice to see him finally get out there and make an impact on the team. And then Josh Downs, who got the start today with the backup unit, or not today, Saturday, he had a couple of screen passes early on, Adam, and it really looked like he was comfortable, not screen passes, slant routes over the middle of the field. And as small as he is, he looked like he was pretty comfortable streaking across the middle of that field. I mean, I would dare to say we have another T.Y. Hilton on our hands, and I'm talking early career, pre-injury T.Y. Hilton. 
I think that's what Josh Downs compares to. I've seen it out of camp. Wayne has literally alluded to it since the draft. This is the best receiver in the draft. And I am starting to see the flashes of why. And so absolutely, you know, I think we were talking about it too. The, the offense just seems to click in a much faster way. Receivers are faster this year. Guys are able to get open. You have all sorts of weapons on the team. We really lacked in this department last year. And I think it's going to be one of those strengths. Now, I'm not saying that we're going to have, you know, two 1,000-yard receivers. But I think this is going to be an offense that absolutely spreads the ball around and and uses key matchups in players to try to really move the ball down the field. And it, you alluded to it. It's a combination of getting in a couple of those you know, those true threats on offense like the Josh Downs. But also, too, it's interesting to see just what kind of system Shane Steichen is implementing. And I know here in the preseason, we've seen a very, very dumbed-down version of that because typically teams don't show, you know, what they're working on in the preseason. They just give, like, the very vanilla version of their offense. So I'm very interested to see not only – how these weapons we have on the offense perform, but also how Shane Steichen utilizes them in his system. Yeah. And I certainly can agree with that as well. I I really do think we're going to see an offense that is just able to open it up and it's going to be a very, uh, it'll kind of be like the Peyton Manning offenses of his career where you're barely doing, you know, where you're in the huddle. It's going to be a lot of uh, no huddle, getting the ball down the field, moving the ball, passing within two seconds, next play and moving with that kind of progression. And I'm personally really excited to see what the full offense capability is. Because I've been impressed with, like you said, the vanilla offense. But I want to see the full effect, and I think it's going to be quite terrifying for teams. We might not be the great a great team this year, but I think we're going to be a lot more fun than last year to watch. Absolutely. So let's, let's kind of turn the, t- the page here, talk some on the offense. Let's talk about the defense in that game Saturday night against the Bears. And the first thing that jumped out to me, Adam, is the Colts' pass rush once again had a productive game. They came away this time with four sacks coming from Titus Leo, Grant Stewart, Khalid Kareem, and Trevor Denbo. So another great game by our pass rush this week. Yes, and and I was going to say, sorry, I got spacey for just a second there. But, you know, I think as we kind of looked, you know, at these particular players. I talked about it last week on the podcast. I think you could really see, you know, we were talking about the offense being kind of a fast pace. I think the defense is going to, it's the same thing. You're going to really utilize matchups this year with a lot of different players. And you're going to have a big rotation. I know that the Colts' biggest issue has been pass rush on the defense the last several years where they're not getting a high volume of sacks. And I think, you know, you're not going to see any one player, just like on the offense, really be like the de facto type of person. But I think everyone's going to be able to do a little bit of everything. And I think our sack numbers as a whole will increase. Right. Yeah, definitely. And I, like I said, it, this week we didn't have any of the starters playing, but a guy that I've had my eye on is Grant Stewart. He's been a backup linebacker notoriously throughout his career, been a great special teamer but it was nice seeing him coming away with the sack and I know a guy that you've been high on and you've you've mentioned his name a couple times to me is Khalid Kareem and he's a guy who really I think could make a push to get that roster spot as you alluded to to me in private yeah I was definitely rooting for him during the game and I got worried you know during that play where he got hurt and they had to 
kind of take him off on the sides. It's like, this isn't even fair. He just had a great play, and, you know, you knock him off. And he, I believe, also had a sack last week as well. The only player that's had one in each of these two games. But as I look at the pass rush and I look at the players as a whole, you know, you are gonna, you're going to kind of allude to someone in a second that you've really seen being the person that's been very impressive. But Trevor Denbro in this game was absolutely impressive. You know, he was making tackles everywhere. He was breaking balls down. He got that sack, obviously. You know, he really stepped up as a backup safety and really kind of showed, you know, what he's capable of. And I think, you know, he definitely secured his continued roster spot on this team this past weekend. Yeah, it definitely seemed like every other play, the the J.J. Stankovich, the stadium announced him there, was throwing Trevor Denbo's name out there for one reason or another. But staying on the defense, let's switch to the secondary. So we've talked about it all offseason. You have the three young cornerbacks in Darius Rushes or Darius Rush, Juju Brents, and Jalen Jones. And last week it was a different story, but this week Jalen Jones – obviously was drafted as a cornerback by the Colts, played safety in week one of the preseason for us, but this week finally got some snaps at cornerback. And I don't know about you, Adam, but in my opinion, of the three young cornerbacks, he was by far the most productive this week against the Bears. Absolutely. You know, kind of looking at his overall stat line, he ended up finishing the game with four tackles and then looked really good on special teams as well. And again, as this preseason wraps up and, you know, he was a seventh round pick, you know, a lot of people had him mocked much earlier, but, you know, Jalen, I mean, that puts Jalen Jones almost on, was almost on the risk of not making it. And he's pretty low on the depth chart, but, you know, he ultimately to me is who comes out as a true winner in this game, you know, getting those tackles, switching positions this week, again, absolutely is lit it up. So I know that like this, we were going to talk about opening the floor for other takeaways, but how concerned are you with, you know, Juju Brents is our highest corner and yet he's not really being talked about a whole lot at this point, And he's not really making a lot of plays rush. We kind of know where he was after last week, but Brents, the highest corner is the one that we're not getting any noise from. I don't think I'm willing to sound the alarm quite yet just because he got a pretty late start this off season. He missed all of rookie camp with that wrist injury. And he's been pretty, like in and out throughout all of training camp. So I know he's gotten some playing time in each of the, the two preseason games this far. I just think that really be- he's behind the curve as far as his development and getting implemented in- implemented into that Gus Bradley scheme. So I'm not going to sound the alarm just yet. But at the same time, you know, no spot is guaranteed in that starting lineup. You know, we talk every week about how that quarterback position, the starter's are wide open. It seems more and more clear that DJ Baker and Dallas Flowers are going to be the, your starters, but behind them, it's really going to be a battle between Jalen Jones and Darius Rush, who have both had some flashes this preseason in combination with Juju Brent. So just because he was the earlier draft pick between the three doesn't guarantee him anything as far as playing time goes. So Well, and don't forget that Kenny Moore is also still on this roster and has been that right. slot corner that yeah, nickel I, corner for several years. Yeah, exactly. I, I just I just wrote that off as a guarantee as our, our nickel corner. But the outside corners, like I said, it's looking more and more obvious that it's going to be a combination of DJ Baker and your guy De- Dallas Flowers. So interested to see how these three rookies fall in line after that in the depth chart because, as I mentioned, nothing's guaranteed. And if we're basing this just on performance so far through the preseason, 
in my opinion, I have Jalen Jones and Darius Rush both ahead of him at this point. But you know what? Like, before we move on to discussing our next topic, I have to give Chris Ballard a lot of credit. And, you know, I know that's kind of dumb. It's like, what are you talking about, Adam? But, like, think about how we've taken corners either late or picked them up as free agents. And somehow we always get something out of them. So, you know, you've managed to find traits. And, again, I'm going to sound like a broken record because literally this is what Ballard says. You know, we look for the traits and things. And then those players come and develop. You know, I think people had written Daryl Baker off, you know, after he was drafted a couple years ago. Dallas Flowers, I hyped him up last year. And, you know, now he's getting a, a chance to really prove himself. And then you've got these corners that we drafted that all looked good in college, too. I mean, give whoever is helping Ballard with these decisions a lot of credit. Because, again, we lost our defensive back coach, Allen Williams, to the Bears, who was really highly sought after and became their associate head coach. And whoever we brought in to replace him has just continued to help develop these corners, build up these corners. And again, you know, got to give credit to the defensive backs coach for our team as well. Yeah, I can definitely agree with you there. You have anything else that you want to throw out there on this, on your takeaways from this game or anything, Adam, or you think you, we've covered it pretty good so far? Um, I can't really think of anything, but obviously as we go into the next game, you know, you talked about Richardson starting. I hope we kind of get to see more of, the entire offense play. I think defense, we've kind of seen some of those starters play, but I, I can't wait to get the whole unit on the team just to kind of get this season amped up and, you know, really kind of get everyone back into the spirit of football. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we're getting closer and closer every day to that September 10th homecoming against the Jaguars. So any time that we have an opportunity to get those starters out there, whether that be through – the joint practice with the Eagles this week or that game Thursday, depending on how much they play. It just makes me that much more excited for the, for the actual thing to be here, you know, here in the next couple of weeks. But if you're content on the game, Adam, we'll move on to probably the most pressing thing in terms of the Colts this week. Absolutely. And that's Jonathan Taylor has indeed received permission to seek a trade. And Adam, I just wanted to wanted us both to discuss our thoughts on this whole thing. Do we think he gets traded? If we do, what do we see his value as being? You know, who do you think he gets traded to? So anything that you have, do you want to go first or you want me to go first? Well, before I'll I'll go first, but I want to say thank you for finding the notes from Albert Breer because I was looking for it as we got the podcast started and I was like, I know that this is something I want to add in, but again, you know, you asked the question of, does he get traded? If so, what kind of value does he have? I mean, at this point, I think you and I are kind of in unison on this. I think the desire for me is that he gets traded. I think Jonathan Taylor's desire is to get traded. But I still don't think the Colts are really trying to trade him. However... I do think he ultimately gets dealt. And I say that because, you know, if you're going to get something for him, and I know that some people are like, well, wait till he's not injured. I think right now is your best shot if Taylor truly does want to leave. But, I, again, I wish the man would speak to the media. But, you know, he's got everything going on through the agent. So, to me, the Colts' asking price is very high. I'll let you kind of do- – dive deeper into that and what executives are saying but 
ultimately, I think he gets dealt. I think he's going to the NFC personally. I'm, I'm looking at Chicago in particular just because there is a need there for them. And so ultimately what I see happening is the Colts are not going to quite get what they want, but they're going to get enough assets to be like, yeah, let's go ahead and get this thing done. Yeah, and I'd say my stance on this is a little bit more deeper than that. And I think if you really want to know what's going on, I think it's it's pretty obvious if you if you look at the way things are worded and you also look at that asking price from the Colts that you just alluded to. So let's just look at the wording. Jonathan Taylor has been given permission to seek a trade. Now, obviously, any final decision will need you know the Colts' approval, but seeking a trade means Jonathan Taylor and his agent have been granted permission to talk to other teams, to gauge the interest. And I don't know about you, Adam, but if I'm another team – and this player who is coming off of his worst statistical year as a professional, who is still on the physically unable to perform list, comes to me and I'm an, and I'm an executive. I don't know if I would have a whole lot of you know promising things to share with that running back. And then you couple that with the fact that the Colts are reportedly asking for a first round pick or multiple picks that would be equal value to a first-round pick. And you just mentioned the the thing from Albert Breer that I have written down here. So Albert Breer of Sports Illustrated spoke to multiple NFL GMs and executives across the league on where they would value Taylor in terms of the trade compensation. And I'm just, I'm just going to read this list. So one AFC GM said the second-round pick. An AFC executive said a third and a fifth-round pick. An NFC executive said that he would package in the value of, he said he would offer a package in the value of a second or third round pick. Another AFC executive said a third or fourth round pick. An NFC executive said a second or third round pick. And then they, that NFC executive actually noted less than a McCaffrey trade, which we can discuss mm-hmm. here in a minute if you'd like to. Sure. Another NFC executive said maybe maybe a day two pick. Another AFC executive, a third round pick. Another AFC executive, a second round pick. Fourth and a fourth NFC executive, possibly, and I say possibly, a day two pick. NFC executive, a fourth that could turn into a third rounder under time conditions. So you're really seeing that across the league. Jonathan Taylor is being valued way, way, way under what the Colts are putting the asking price out as a first pick. And I think, personally, this is done by design for the Colts. I don't think the Colts have any intention on trading Jonathan Taylor. Instead, I think by giving him and his agent the opportunity to go talk to other teams, by seeing that nobody is willing to offer the Colts that first-round pick, this is what the Colts are going to bring to them with the table or to the table when them and Taylor finally sat down to have these contract discussions, they're going to say, look, you and your agent spoke to all these teams across the league. Nobody wanted to give us the trade compensation we wanted. And obviously if they're going to trade, that would be part of a trade and then sign them to an extension thing. And none of them would be willing to do that either. And then on top of that, they get all that feedback from the other owners saying, well, here's our concerns, and they're going to be the same concerns that the Colts have listed all offseason. You're coming off of a season riddled with injuries. You're still on the PUP list. 
which by the way, Adam, by he has until August 29th, one week from today, to either be removed from that list or be added to the list where he's out for the first four weeks of the regular season. So I think all this is a big ploy by the Colts so that Taylor and his agent, whatever his name was, can get out there, talk to other teams. They're going to tell him the exact same things the Colts have been telling him all offseason long. He's going to realize he's not as valuable as he thinks he is. And at the end of the day, the Colts still hold all the leverage. If nobody offers what they want them to offer them, well, too bad you're still a Colt and you're still under contract. So either you're going to pass a physical and play or you're going to pass a physical and you're going to start getting fined if you continue to hold out. Well, and see, it's interesting that you just alluded to the whole, you know, the whole encompassing reason that I said I thought that if a trade's going to get done, it's going to be in the next week. And it's because you mentioned that whole concern with the PUP and the decision that he has to make within a week for whether he's going to play or not. I could see him holding out, but think about what that does to his value. It hurts him even more. And it's just going to prove team's concerns. I mean, I'm still of the sound mind that he might not even be that injured, but I've heard multiple people say, you know, at practice that he, the man can barely walk. There's two different extremes there. Now, pushing all of that aside for a minute, you know, you alluded to the fact that, you know, NFL owners are going to look at this and meet Taylor and his agent with concern. I completely agree with you. This was done by design for the Colts. There's no losing in this in the scenario for the team. It is win-win for Colts. It's lose-lose for Taylor. Because again, in addition to what teams are valuing the pick at, you know, it sounds like to me after looking through all of it, it's about a third rounder. And that's being somewhat generous depending on what the team is. Some of these teams that are maybe valuing him higher are the ones that need a running back. Some of the other ones that are valuing him lower really don't. I told you the other day, I thought that this gets done for a third. Again, the team wants it first. It goes back to exactly what you just said. If the team doesn't get the value, they keep Taylor. They tag him after this year for the next two. Taylor has no control of the situation. So again, I think, you know, you spoke to the idea that it's going to maybe make Taylor have to come back to the negotiating table and realize, okay, I might need to settle down with my demands a little bit. It might make his agent realize, okay, everyone else is also devaluing them. And, you know, Taylor's talked about it. The owners are not valuing running backs the same way. At this point, the longer it takes, and I'm going to say this, the longer it takes for this contract to get done, the lower amount of money he's going to get. You know, I think, you know, the Colts can afford to play chicken with this. It's like, here, we're going to offer you $12 million today. Taylor wants to hold out another month. It's like, we're sitting at eleven. Another month after that, we're sitting at 10. And, you know, if he doesn't play his heart out, he's not getting anything. If Taylor wants to get the deal done, he needs to do it soon. And, you know, I've seen plenty of chat on this on the Colts Nation Facebook pages and whatnot, but he if he wants to get back to the table and have the discussions, the Colts will start with him any time. But he has to be willing to put his best step forward. You know, it's like I said in my article a month ago. Jonathan Taylor absolutely controls his fate. If he wants the money, he has to come to the table and he has to quit making so many ridiculous demands. But at the end of the day, Jonathan Taylor is not going to get that $16 million that he wanted. He's going to see that other teams do not value him that much. So again, he could get traded to any team. Guess what? No one's signing him to $16 million. 
the only running back in my mind in the entire league that is worth that is CMC. McCafferty is worth it because he is that versatile. He can run and catch the ball, and he might get a 1,000 and 1,000. He's done it for years. And if he hasn't, he's been pretty close to getting those types of statistics every year. Jonathan Taylor is not that good. He's good, but not CMC type of good. So, again, these values, I think, are absolutely reasonable. Taylor's going to have a coming-to-Jesus moment, and that's going to be the way that it is. And, you know, we'll see what happens from there. Well, and just to, you know, just to bounce off your CMC point, and this is my standpoint on this, it's all relative. I don't, even if, let's say Jonathan Taylor is the best running back in the league. As a whole in the NFL, running backs are not getting paid as much as other positions. Whether it's fair or not is a completely different conversation for another day. At the end of the day, this is what we're looking at, and this is going to be kind of summarizing my point. These would be the requirements for any team that wants to trade for Jonathan Taylor. First, they'd have to be willing to give up a first-round pick because that's the rumored asking price from the Colts. Second, they must be willing to immediately extend Jonathan Taylor, which means paying him that rumored $15 to $16 million annually. And all this has to be done on the gamble that that ankle injury that he dealt with all year last year and reportedly is still dealing with considering he's still on the PUP list, all that is on a gamble that that ankle is healed up either now or in time for season. So I don't think any team in their right mind are going to make those kind of investments into Jonathan Taylor, and that's regardless whether or not he's a top one, top three, top five, type top ten running back. It doesn't matter. With all things considered, I don't see any team being a trading or a suitable trade partner for the Colts. And I think the Colts are very well aware of that. And I think this is all a ploy for Taylor and his, his agent who's turned Taylor into some, you know, enemy of the team. I think this is all for them to see, wake up and see, Hey, you're not as valuable as you think you are. So now let's sit down and have these conversations. And I really, really truly feel that way. And I, I just don't see a trade getting done for that reason. Well, and I want to kind of back up your point. Again, I, I think we are completely in sync on this. So I want us to think about the NFL trades of running back over about the last 20 to 25 years. So even Christian McCaffrey himself did not go for a first rounder. I mean, I don't care what people say. You know, when you put, you, you know, you talk about the equivalent of a first round pick. I'm sorry, but a second, third, fourth, and fifth rounder, which is what they got for a CMC, that to me is not equal to a first. A first is a first. And I think the Colts, like you said, are making the value high to make it understood to Taylor that it's like, you know, you're not also as valuable as what you think you are. You know, we we believe that you're valuable. I think they're trying to make that kind of the, the mindset they go into this with, which, you know, could help or hurt Taylor, depending on how he wants to negotiate. But you look at that trade, didn't go for a first. You look at the last 15 years, the only running back to get traded in the NFL for a first-round pick is none other than Trip Richardson from the Browns to the Colts. And again, we saw how that trade panned out. You know, you alluded to it a second ago. Running backs are not as valuable as they used to be. You know, a lot of teams run quick, short passes, quick, short runs, longer passes. Passing is the name of the game now. Taylor's not getting wide receiver level money. Again, you can replace the player. 
Taylor's going to have to understand that at any given point, his job can be taken from him. And, you know, you alluded to why the team's not getting a first. You know, he has to keep in mind, you know, you, you talked about extending him immediately. Again, no team is going to want to trade even, I'll even say a third rounder and have to extend him for $15 million a year. And that's why the value is going to be lower. Taylor would have to be willing to also work within a team's parameters for the Colts to get the value that they're seeking. But I don't think it's about that for the team. I think it's, you know, like you just said, it's proving the point to Taylor that you're not what you think you are. You're not going to get what you're looking for. Again, Saquon Barkley, just kind of look at what happened to him. He held out thinking he was going to get 14 to 15 million a year. He only got 10. And that's with the injury concerns he's had. Josh Jacobs is not signing for 10 or 11. And that's like I just said, Taylor's asking price is going to go down. I think the Colts are willing to give the guy 10 to 11 million a year at this point. Taylor won 16. I don't think, and again, I said a couple weeks ago, meet in the middle when I was a little more apathetic towards Taylor. Empathetic, my apologies. But now, the longer it goes, like I said, it's going to hurt his value more. So let him see, you know, I'm with you. Let him seek the trade. Let him find out the hard way. And then, you know, the Colts are going to win either way. Either they're going to get a high value draft pick or Taylor's going to sign for what they want. But Taylor's not it, not going to win in either scenario. And that's where I'm going to leave it. Absolutely. And I think that's a perfect way to end it right there. We both agree. I don't see them getting traded. I think the Colts hold all the leverage, and this is just them adding to that leverage they already held. But here we are, 42 minutes into the podcast already, Adam. (laughs) I guess we should probably wrap up our Colts discussion. So I'm going to hand it over to you, and I'll let you take it away on some Pacers and IU stuff, and I'll be here for the conversation's sake. Well, believe it or not, I want to mention one more thing about the Colts and make this a very quick discussion. Oh, yes, I missed over. I skipped right over this. So, again, there is some news that came out of Philadelphia today about a brawl taking place at the practice and it making the practice get canceled. And so, basically, what my understanding is there's two plays that it came down to, but the one that really stirred the hornet's nest is Zaire Franklin made a tackle on Kenneth Gainwell out of the backfield on kind of a trick running back play. And then it basically caused Kelsey, I guess, in the ways, as they said it, to lay out Zaire Franklin, which led to a huge brawl on the field. And so the practice was canceled. And then, you know, basically it was kind of admitted after that Jason Kelsey, you know, was telling the media, you know, I I overreacted to this. And so first off, I want to get your thoughts is, is that something that's warranting a practice being canceled? Uh, I think so. Just, just to take it back a second, when we talked about the whole decision, behind not playing the starters in the games. That's just, you don't want any unnecessary injury risk. And with a practice that was already as chippy as it was, and I'll let you take the prior instance that happened before this brawl, but you don't want to take the risk of it escalating from there and getting, getting even more nastier. And next thing you know, you have somebody hurt who was looking to be a huge part of your team that year. So I, I understand the, the practice being called early. And I understand the chippiness from both teams. It just sucks that it ended the way that it did. Well, here's the thing. And, you know, I want to kind of quote what Kelsey said. And then I want to have a very short debate here. 
So he said, you know, and I quote with his interview after the practice is over, we try and keep things civil on the field. And I pride myself on being a guy that sustains the emotions and level of play out there. And I let the emotions get the better of me. That certainly doesn't belong out there on the field. And I'm a little ashamed that it got to that level. So I'm going to come off a bit strong here. Feel free to disagree with me. But I absolutely have a problem with how the NFL wants to dictate games and how they want to go and suspend players for some of the most ridiculous stuff. Yet when someone like a center, like Kelsey, does something that could potentially injure somebody, the league turns the other cheek and doesn't say anything. So in my mind, and I'm sorry, like I said, this comes on strong. I absolutely think that the same type of accountability has to be held for practices. I'm sorry, but Kelsey's quote there about, I let my emotions get the better of me. I get that it's football. I get that it's hot outside, but you have to have some level of accountability for your choices. And I believe that Jason Kelsey needs to be suspended for an indefinite amount of time because not, and I'm not saying the whole season, but because again, what's that say when the NFL is trying to get all these helmets that protect players heads and you know, you want to go out there and do cheap shots. I think there has to be a, the same type of accountability for practices as in games. Well, and it's interesting you raised that point because I don't know if you remember last offseason or last preseason. I think it was Aaron, Aaron Darnold from the Rams. Aaron Donald, sorry, I can't talk, from the Rams, had a very familiar situation, very much like uh, Miles Garrett in Cleveland where Garrett removed Mason Rudolph's helmet and hit him in the head with it. That happened during an actual game, and Garrett received a pretty hefty suspension and fine for that. And then this past, it was either this last year or the year before in the in training camp, Aaron Donald did the exact same thing, and there was no punishment for it. So it's kind of interesting to see how the NFL handles it if it happens during a practice instead of a game. I don't, I don't understand why it would be handled any differently, but it sure seems to be that there is, you know, it is handled handled differently, but. I do want to make one final point on the whole Jason Kelsey thing. And you mentioned it was Jason Kelsey that came over and laid out Zaire Franklin. And Jason Kelsey was the first to admit that it was a cheap shot. And I'm just interested to see if there's any carryover from this into Thursday's game because Zaire Franklin was asked about it after the fact. And he, he mentioned the fact that he grew up in you know the Philadelphia area and he always kind of liked watching Kelsey and the Eagles and thought that they carried themselves better than that. And he said, this come from Zaire Franklin's mouth. I, I always thought that they would at least give you the respect to look in your eyes before they do something like that. And then he added the fact that, but hopefully Thursday I'll get a chance to look him in his eyes. So interested to see if there's any carryover from this in that game on Thursday. Oh, and I could absolutely see this game getting chippy. You know, again, you have our head coach coming from their team. You have, you know, personnel from that team coming over after we got Shane Steichen. But I want to kind of make one final note, kind of to make a separate sidebar from this. But Jalen Hurts was asked about this as well. And, you know, it was interesting that the first thing that was mentioned is that the play that they were running with Kenneth Gainwell was something that Shane Steichen instilled. So it was kind of interesting to hear that was a play call from last year. But Jalen Hurts himself expressed displeasure with this idea that the practice ended early. So he was quoted as saying, it's a competitive game and I love the competition of it. That is what I get paid to do, play football. So I wanted to practice. So again, 
to me, you know, I kind of asked you, was it warranted to cancel the practice? I would say, you know, at the point that it was absolutely, but at the same time, you know, remove the players that are having the instances. The Cleveland Browns had a perfect example of this in their practice today. There was fighting on the field. So what did the coach make them do? They made, they made them do running drills. So again, to me, it goes back to that concept of accountability. Hold your players accountable. What does canceling practice say? Oh, we're just going to go ahead and just say this is done. Yes, I get the tempers flaring, but give a consequence to the players that started it. Move on with practice and continue. And then if it escalates a second time, then maybe make that conversation. But I get why they cancel it because it was a big brawl. It wasn't just these two, but other players got involved. And, you know, there was a previous play where defensive end Derek Barnett knocked the ball out of Aaron or Anthony Richardson's hand. And that made things start to get chippy. And then obviously, you know, it led to the bigger ball a little bit later on. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that really is a good example of why they did end up calling practice after that point, because it was the Kelsey knocking over Zaire Franklin that started that huge brawl, but the tension had been growing throughout the practice, you know, from the start. So don't leave it the chance for it to escalate to a whole nother level is I think is at the end of the day, why it ended up being canceled, but crazy situation. Like I said, interested to see if there's any carryover from that in that game Thursday night. But with that, Adam, you have anything else on the Colts? No, obviously, you know, it's going to be interesting to see this game on Thursday. I know I, for one, I'm kind of ready to see this preseason wrap up, but you know, next week, I know we'll be talking more about who's getting cut. If we haven't, you know, talked about it previously, you know, obviously, and then we'll kind of go from there just to kind of talk about where the regular season's direction is going to head. But unless you have anything, I'm going to go ahead and move on to the Pacers. Yep, go ahead. All right, so this will be pretty short and sweet and right to the point. So, again, I only have one thing to mention. Um, this past week, Tyrese Halliburton had one heck of a game on Sunday. The Team USA was holding, you know, a game against Germany to kind of end their ex- exhibition games. And so – Germany, for a lot of this game, was leading. They were leading by, I think, I want to say almost 20 points in the third quarter, and then it very quickly turned over. So with helping uh, Anthony Rich, or Anthony, sorry, Anthony Edwards from the Minnesota Timberwolves get to 34 points, 18 of which were in the fourth quarter, Tyrese Halliburton looked like he was in mid-season form. And here's where I'm going to say it. So, again, he comes off the bench. So, remember, he is not a starter for Team USA, which, you know, I've already told you how I feel about that. But in 21 minutes, he scores 16 points, and it helped the USA rally to beat Germany 99-91, to a game which really kind of elevated them as they get ready to head into the whole FIBA World Cup. So, Halliburton, with his 16 points, had five of seven shots that he made. That is a 71% clip, which included three of four on three-pointers. Again, like I said, mid-season form. So he, I believe, also had nearly 10 assists in that game. I couldn't find the exact statistics, so I apologize. But throughout this series to this point, Tyrese Halliburton has averaged 9.2 points with 7.2 assists coming off the bench as the Team USA went 5-0 and in exhibition games. And so they begin their World Cup play this upcoming Saturday. So 
the first question, when does the USA start? They start Saturday against New Zealand at 8.40 a.m. Eastern time. So it is a very early game. So if people are going to catch it, you're going to have to watch it in the morning. But what I want to have a very quick discussion about on this. So as I mentioned, the team has gone 5-0 and in exhibitions games, hasn't lost since, you know, making their team. And what the Team USA seems to be utilizing is an approach where no certain player is the clear leader, giving everyone a clear shape. You know, you've had previous teams where you have the LeBrons, and he might take over. Carmelo Anthony, who's probably, you know, one of Team USA's best players ever, would take over. Kobe Bryant, when he played, would take over. But what I want to ask is, do you think it's a smart approach as the USA prepares for these World Cup games to not have that clear-cut guy, to kind of, like, have different people kind of being the person for one game that steps up? I think so. I mean, especially uh, that's what the exhibition games are meant for, in a way. Get a sense of where you're at as a team, what combination of guys gel well together on the court. And I think, really, Saturday is going to be the first true test of where all these guys fall in line, you know, as the actual FIBA World Cup kicks off. I think it's a smart idea by by the team to use those exhibition games to just kind of get a mixture of guys in there, get an idea of who's going to be their go-to and what situation. And like I said, Saturday, I think, is when you're really going to get a look at just what kind of role Halliburton's going to have with the team moving forward. Well, and it's interesting that you mentioned him again. So I want to say that despite being off the bench, so I don't think that they're going to change the roles of him starting. But do you think – that Halliburton can continue with this kind of run like he had in the past game? Or do you think he's going to play more like what he has throughout the season or throughout the exhibition games with his average? So do you think he steps up or do you think he kind of takes, you know, a reverse role or, uh, uh, sorry, you know what I mean? Like a bench role again. I I think it's going to be on a game to game basis. And I've always felt this way about Halliburton. I think he has the ability that not a lot of people have to kick it into gear and take it out of gear. It just depends on what the team's looking for on any, any given day. And I mentioned this, what, a week or two ago when we talked about Halliburton and how he's going to perform with the Pacers this year. He has the ability to go out there and be your leading scorer and drop 40, 50 points on somebody, but he knows how to turn that off and be the, the facilitator when he needs to be. So really, I think whatever Team USA needs him to be in any given game, he's going to step up into that role, and I think he has no problem doing so. So I can't really say for sure whether or not I think his averages are going to continue to look like what he did this past game or if it's going to be more of a reserved role or what because, like I said, he has that ability that not a lot of people have to turn it in or turn it on to turn it off as necessary. Well, and see, what's going to be interesting for me because, you know, like a 99-91 to 91 game, that kind of spells, you know, the idea – that the team seems to care a bit more about defense in this. And so as I see Halliburton go into the World Cup, that's the aspect that I'm looking at. I think he's going to kind of play that reverse role, keep averaging about 10 points in those seven assists. Again, like you said, he's that facilitator role. I think he comes in that role as he needs. But I absolutely want to see how the defense approach for it goes because I wish we had, you know, maybe another player on our team playing in the – in the FIBA World Cup, but Halliburton's defense is really going to dictate how our team ends up doing. You know, because for years, that was the the Pacers' bread and butter is defense. Not a high-scoring volume team, 
But, you know, I think the team absolutely will follow Halliburton in everything that he does. So if we see Halliburton's defense really take off in these, you know, exhibition games and into the World Cup, I really could see it carrying over into the regular season and helping and sorry, helping the team. Absolutely. I agree with you there. So I'm going to go ahead and get into my IU mitt smash and you'll all kind of see why here in a minute. But uh, the first thing I wanted to briefly mention real quick is that Trey Galloway and Xavier Johnson are named the team captains. I'm sure for anyone that watches IU basketball, that's probably not a big surprise. Those are your seniors on the team. But again, it is good to kind of see Galloway taking on his role seriously. And I know Xavier Johnson's been working with the point guards and kind of helping to get them ready to go too. And then the other thing on IU basketball that I briefly want to mention is IU head coach Mike Woodson this week received a $1 million raise each year over the next four. So do you think that's warranted considering that he hasn't had a lot of postseason success, or do you think that IU is kind of looking at the body of what he will do? In a way, I see it. it's warranted. You, you look at the previous re- regimes, and I think you talked about this during basketball season. One thing that Woodson's already done that a couple of the past coaches weren't doing is he's making that tournament on a consistent basis. Yes, the success in the tournament hasn't been there yet, but he's shown the ability to get the team there. So I think it's warranted to give that little bit of an increase. And at the end of the day, we mentioned it, you know, last week, he really had to go through a complete overhaul with the team this week, losing Trace Jackson Davis and Jalen Hood Shafino to the draft. And so he was really, you know, in a position where, he could have gone one of two ways. He could have let the team falter for a year or two, waiting on these next few freshman classes to come in, or he could hit the transfer portal hard, which is what he chose to do. And he, in my opinion, really got IU to a position where they could still be competitive this season. So when you look at the whole body of, of work, I think that is warranted. Well, and see, I was going to say, you know, I was thinking about it earlier in the week and I was going to say, why are they doing this so soon? You know, he hasn't really had, a sustained period of success. I I mean, personally, before we signed everybody, I would have been in the mindset. It's like, wait another year and see what he does with the new class. But I think you just kind of spoke it into existence to me. And it makes a lot more sense when you're looking at who he got to come as, you know, transfer portals and considering that he was able to quickly rebuild the team. I think IU is looking at this man as, you know, we're giving you a raise because you've kept us relevant. And, I think it speaks to how IU is confident about how their basketball season is going to go. I certainly hope for Mike Woodson's sake that, you know, he is ready to certainly earn that raise. But what I want to say about this too, and I think you and I can both agree on this. How is Matt Painter not paid more than him? How is Matt Painter not in the top three coaches like Woodson now is in the big 10? I think it's a big travesty to Mike Painter or Matt Painter that he's not getting what he rightfully deserves. And so again, not trying to ramp up Purdue, but I think Matt Painter would has earned the distinction more than Woodson. And I guess, you know, to each their own, but again, I don't know. I just think, you know, it shows that IU is willing to pay and I feel bad for Painter because he certainly deserves his share as well. Hey, I'm just proud of this, Adam. I'm over here complimenting Woodson you're over here coming to the defensive painter. What's happening to us, bro? I think we're getting soft doing this podcast. You're right. Boiler up. Who's your suck? Continue. Let's go ahead and talk about some football and, you know, tackle some issues. But 
again, I want to kind of get your thoughts about this, you know, not being, you know, a big IU fan of sorts, and I'm going to be pretty outspoken on this myself, but there were reports coming out of IU that they want to cancel part of the Louisville series for football over the next couple of years. So they set this up back in 2015. So I didn't know that they set up their schedules 10, almost 10 years in advance. So IU agrees to a three-year deal with Louisville. Well, the first year, which is this year, they're coming to Lucas Oil Stadium before we're going to Louisville next year. And so, again, what's the big deal, right? So reports also indicate that IU recruits and the team are concerned about national exposure and that not having an extra home game for the third year will affect them overall. Again, giving them only five. So, let me get your thoughts before I give you mine. Does IU have a point here, considering how the new alignment with the Big Ten is going to come, or are they just kind of being, you know, kind of wimps about the whole thing? I mean, I think they kind of have a point here, but at the same time, if they agreed to it back in 2015, then I think they need to hold up their end of the deal. I mean, even if it's a bad deal, it's not Louisville's fault or anyone else's fault that IU agreed to it. So at the end of the day, whether or not they have a valid point, they reach an agreement. I think they should honor it, in my humble opinion. Well, and, you know, I completely agree on this. So maybe I'm not as outspoken as I thought. You know, it's kind of like we talked about with Jonathan Taylor for so long. You know, you sign a contract, honor the contract. You know, for me personally, IU is not a good football program. And, you know, that's coming from me, who I love the program. But national exposure should not be the point for IU. You're not getting prospects at a high level to the NFL. So here's what it speaks to me as I think about this. I get IU wanting to have an extra home game. Fine. That's valid. That's fair. But again, Louisville's a reputable football program. It's not like, you know, you make a three-year agreement with like Idaho State and you three games away. I understand canceling that series because schools pay those schools to come lose. But Louisville is not, you know, some mid-market team. IU gets the Big Ten exposure regardless. So what it sounds like is they want a Big Ten game at home. Or they're kind of pulling the Kentucky card where it's like, you know, oh, we're not going to, you know, we're not going to come to IU. You can come here as much as you want, but we're not going to go there. It's kind of IU being hypocritical, obviously different sport. But to me, national exposure should be the least bit of concern. Again, the Big Ten makes more money for sports with their sports deals, with all the sports channels like NBC and Fox and CBS than any other conference does. And that includes the SEC. So IU will still get their share. So if that's what the concern is about them not getting their share, you know, I already alluded to it as well. IU makes more money in the Big Ten for sports concessions, sales, and getting people to events than any other sport. And with that, you know, you have anything you want to add? No, I I think you you summarized it pretty well. I guess just at the end of the day, I'd just like to echo what I said. You know, you signed a deal. I feel like you need to honor it. And as far as the national exposure goes, you, you get that football program where you want it to be and get them on a little bit of a stretch where they have some winning seasons and they become bowl eligible and that national exposure will come. It's not something that you can force. It's something that needs to come 
organically. So I really, really am having a hard time understanding where I use gripe is coming from on either side of this. The, the fact that they're missing out on the home game or the exposure because one they signed up for and the other one they haven't earned yet. So at the end well, of the day, I just don't see any kind of point that IU has here. And you took the words right out of my mouth about how if IU, you know, is winning, it's a different story. So at the end of the day, you know, I want to end with this point before we move on to our next IU topic. But if IU wants national exposure so bad, make your football team good. Actually win some games. Find a way to get it done. You want your national exposure? Get to the playoffs or get in the top 25. Get more fans to sit in those seats. Because until you do that, national exposure isn't going to happen. You have to earn national exposure. It's kind of like why the Colts don't have any primetime games this year. They didn't earn it. IU certainly not earning it either. So with that, again, we seem to be in complete agreement on everything tonight it's weird we might need to go you know wash our mouths out with soap or something <laughs> it's 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 weird but anyway Very weird just three more topics on iu and again i apologize for this being so iu heavy i need to be better about writing purdue notes too which you know go iu but george <laughs> mcginnis who went to iu and ended up eventually being a pacers player was just put into IU, or sorry, yeah, was just put into IU's Hall of Fame. But he's been in the Pacers Hall of Fame for years. His jersey hangs in the Pacers Raptors where it's been for as long as I can remember. Why did this take IU so long to do, do you think? I, I think one thing that compl- or that complicated things is he only spent one year with IU. And now, granted, that one year was dominant, you know, 29.9 points per game. But... This also, too, is something to take into consideration. His tenure with IU came just before, like literally the year before the Bob Knight era. And the Bob Knight era is really when IU basketball went to another level. So I think maybe if his time with IU was in that time frame where Bob Knight was there and IU basketball was the national powerhouse that it became under Bob Knight, then maybe this happened years ago. But I think it's a combination of only being here the there the one year and being there pre-Bob Knight are probably the only things I can think of that would have worked against him. But either way, I think it's a very, very deserving spot for him in the Indiana Hall of Fame. I completely agree as well. And I want to just, again, compliment Joey for knowing so much about IU. It's like he would be a fan or something. I'm very proud of him. It's almost like I saw this name in, or in your notes and I had to Google it or something. Uh, fine, fine. <laughs> but anyway, I'd like to point out the record. I'm still proud of him nonetheless. And so, again, oh, we're gonna cu- we're gonna kind of keep the shift on basketball here. But Indiana freshman guard Jakai Newton underwent a procedure to treat a pre-existing injury this past week. So at this point, according to the release from IU, there is no timetable for his return. So it is reportedly a microfracture which is an injury that, as many people are aware, does not usually result in players coming back to playing very well post-injury. Now, for IU, he was ranked the 84th best player in the top 300. So again, this is a pretty significant loss, if you know it's anything big. But do you have any concerns with the idea that it's a microfracture at this point? Uh, I mean, maybe a little bit, but I would assume this would all had to have been public knowledge when he came to IU. So 
hopefully it's something that the team and the team doctors looked into and they felt pretty, pretty comfortable, you know, still bringing him in despite this injury that they knew would have to be addressed. So I guess if anything, I would take solace in the fact that I'm sure it was looked into from the get go. And I'm sure there's reason to believe he'll come back a hundred percent. But outside of that, I, I don't, I don't know. I guess I'm always just a little bit on edge when somebody says there's no timetable for a return just because of, you know, our time as Colts fans and what that normally means for us. But yeah. So I want to actually add two things to what you said. So the first thing is, you know, you kind of alluded to IU being aware of it and, you know, he was injured and missed pretty much all of last season. So he hasn't played since I believe they said January of 22, if I'm correct. Or, or March of 22, something like that. Mm-hmm. And he, or sorry, let me let me correct that. He didn't play from like March of 22 to February of this year, so he missed nearly a year, and then barely played any basketball before coming to IU. So that is one concern: is that he might have not have been completely, you know, transparent with IU, or if IU did know about it, maybe they weren't as aware. But the second thing is, and this actually just happened yesterday, IU ended up adding two walk-ons to the roster. So they added Jackson Creel of Rend Lake College and then Jordan Rayford, who is a transfer from Air Force, which both of these, I might add, being 6'5 guards. So does that kind of change your stance at all about the concerns, considering maybe where IU is coming in, or is it still kind of like, eh? Yeah, I don't think it really changes my stance. I think that's pretty standard procedure from teams doing their, you know, their due diligence with the walk-ons and seeing where they stand. And I don't, I don't know that it changes my stance on the prior conversation, though. Now, I will say I, I kind of agree with that. You know, Mike Woodson usually keeps a pretty short bench. He might play three players off. I don't think that Newton was going to be one of those guys. I think Gabe Cups is going to be one of them. And then as you kind of look through, you know. The Ball State Center, who I cannot remember his name right now, is going Peyton to be probably Sparks. Thank you. Peyton Sparks is going to probably be in there. And then, you know, as you kind of look, you know, you have Renault, Mabago in the lineup. So Anthony Walker is probably your number three guy coming off the bench. So Newton probably was not going to get a whole lot of playing time either. So I do like, you know, the idea that he will have a lot of time to heal. I think, you know, IU is still willing to sign him, like you said, considering those injuries. And I think, you know, we'll see more of him next year. But I would just kind of, for him, take his red shirt season, get himself right, you know, because remember, players have that luxury as well. And then we'll see him again in 2024. Absolutely. So, yeah, no reason to rush it or anything like that. But finally, we are going to, just kind of wrap this up here. And sorry, I'm, I want to correct one thing I said. The injury was that he didn't play from May of 22, not March of 22 to February of 23. So still then, a pretty significant amount of time, though. Yeah. And so speaking of concerns from them, there has been also concerns with Anthony Leal's ability to perform. So, you know, we talked about, you know, the idea of guards being an issue. And Leal's kind of one of those guys that, you know, kind of has me on edge. Because if he doesn't play, I could see him definitely hitting the transfer portal next year. But IU has four pretty decent guards in Johnson, Galloway, Cups, and then CJ Gunn, who I also expect to see a role. So then my other question is, at this point, IU still has that open scholarship that I talked about from a while back, and they didn't elect to use it. So 
even though they've added these walk-ons, did IU kind of shoot themselves in the foot with this, considering that the portal is now closed? And do you see the concerns with having to use walk-ons? My question was originally finding walk-ons, but obviously that changed yesterday. So, again, did IU shoot themselves in the foot, and do you see concerns with walk-ons being the answer at this point? I don't I don't think they shot themselves in the foot. Just a couple things here. Number one, we just talked about Woodson and getting that million-dollar pay increase per year. And you got to believe that Woodson has the ability to get Anthony Leal where he needs to be in order to be a you know a contributing piece of this team. And then you also just mentioned a minute ago, Woodson normally doesn't really go too far deep onto his bench. So you mentioned you got four other guards outside of Leal, and if Leal's not going to contribute, he's got he's got enough guys to get enough playing time out of. And then as far as your walk on thing goes, I'm just going to echo what I say earlier. I don't. I don't, I don't, I wouldn't be concerned. I mean, yes, you don't want to rely on a walk on, you know, saving your team by any concern, but for the role that, that Leal possesses, and I'm, I might not be as knowledgeable on what that is as you are, but I would imagine that it's something that I wouldn't be too terrified of a walk on stepping in and, and having a small contributing role towards the team. Yeah. And I would say, you know, I guess when you start thinking about teams, I think one of my, and I'm going I'm to kind of critique Woodson here for just a second. I think one of my biggest knocks on him is that he doesn't go a little deeper on his bench. I, again, I think that Trace Jackson Davis absolutely had to play over what he should have last season. And I think it's why IU looked at adding two centers this offseason instead of just one. Because, you know, we didn't really have anybody that could come in and kind of help with that. But what I will say about this is, you know, I'm not as I agree. I'm not as concerned about the guard position, but I am concerned about the forward position because there's not a lot of depth. And again, you sign two walk-ons that are guards. And again, uh, Creel is a 35.7% three-point shooter from last season, so he comes in pretty good. And then the Air Force kid, he averaged like 14 or 15 points a game as well. So again, you know, you you have good players coming in. These are, you know, guys that have played at the college level. It's not like they're freshmen that didn't sign or anything. So I'm not overly concerned. But again, at the end of the day, I really do wish that IU might have been a little more proactive in using that scholarship. But I can appreciate that they wanted to be flexible and kind of keep an open mind in case something came up. And this might just be one of those cases, again, where, you know, you didn't have anybody lucky come in or you know you lost out on your your prospects so you're like and we'll just kind of manage and deal with what we've got very well could be the case so with that being said do we have anything else we want to discuss before we i hit verse of the week nope i think we've had a pretty good episode i know it's running a little longer than normal but we had a lot of important things to get to and i think we did a good job touching all of our bases there so i'm ready for verse of the week if you are Yep, I think we did good with an hour and 15. So uh, with that being said, my verse this week comes from John 627, which, you know, I just kind of was reminiscent on some things that are going on. And so it says, do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. So I guess when I was looking for this, I'll be honest, I kind of was looking for Verses that talk about work-life balance or, you know, just kind of managing, you know, what you do at work versus going home and kind of leaving things on the table. And 
as I, I saw this first, it kind of reminded me of two things. So the first thing being that, you know, don't work for food that spoils. I think so many of us get hyper fixated on, oh, we have to do this for work or we have to get this done in order to be successful. Or if we don't do this, we're going to get fired. But, you know, jobs are temporary. You know, a colleague of mine, we're talking about this after work and, you know, she said it best, you know, you can only put so much into your pail with the faucet on once the water overflows, you're not taking in anything else. And then she backed it up by kind of saying, you know, at the end of the day, they will replace you the next day. If something happens to you, if they get rid of you, you get replaced the next day. If you die, you get replaced the next day, which takes us back into, you know, the idea of the food that endures to eternal life. So at the end of the day, everything we do on this earth, the work that we need to do isn't for the man, but it's for the Lord up above. And so, you know, reading that kind of just really put my my mind kind of in a place where I probably needed to go. And again, yeah. I, I, I love my job. Don't get me wrong. But at the end of the day, I have to remember that there are things that are absolutely more important. Yeah, I can definitely appreciate that perspective. And I guess it's, it's kind of funny. We've mentioned this before, how people can take almost completely different things away from a Bible verse. I take away exactly what you just said, but really this Bible verse is kind of like goes along with the theme of things that I've been, you know, thinking about all week. And I've started listening to a new podcast that is directed towards Christian men. And it's really had me thinking about a lot of things. And one of the, one of the underlying themes is, you know, chasing worldly things, you know, Anything on this earth, whether that be a house, and as I mentioned in weeks past, my wife and I are very close in to, to moving into our own house here soon, thankfully. You know, a house, a job, uh, a car, a jersey, you name it. Those, those are all things that when our time on earth is over, th- they mean nothing to us. But one thing that does matter is eternal life. So I guess what I'm trying to get at and one thing that I've really been reflecting on all week is there's so many things here on earth that I focus on and I invest so much time in, but I won't invest the time into reading my Bible or sitting down and saying a prayer. And I I think at the end of the day, that's one thing I take away from this verse. I, you know, I'm, I'm working for the food that spoils, AKA the houses, the cars, the, the clothes, the, you name it. And I haven't put enough work into, you know, what really matters. And that's reading God's word, trying to become the person that God wants me to be trying to find the plan that God has for my life. And I I guess I'm along the same lines of what you were just interesting, how we can both come away from with the same conclusion, but at the same time, have a little bit, a different way of applying it to our life, given like our own, you know, things going on in our life. So I really, really enjoy this verse, and I think it's perfect timing for things I've been reflecting on all week, actually. Well, so two things I want to say. First thing, that Jersey thing, that was about me, but... Well, no, again. it was <laughs> That's That wasn't supposed to be directed about you. I was just trying to think of things that I myself have, like, blown my money on or, you know, invested my time in and stuff, and that's just one of the things that came to my mind for whatever reason. Yeah, I I mean, you know, it's interesting that you talked about, you know, that very concept of, you know, what happens, you know, when we die and that, you know, we we work for things that spoils. But I think you're absolutely right. People make excuses for, you know, 
not being able to pray, not being able to read the Bible. And, you know, for I'll admit, you know, we're just as guilty of it. My, me especially, you know, I was doing so good for nearly six months on, you know, finding the Bible verses on the app on our phones. And, you know, we were reading it and having great in-depth discussions. And, you know, we kind of, we got, we backed away from it. We were like, oh, we just don't have time. But, you know, at the end of the day, the things that God places the seal of approval for are the food that endures to eternal life, the belief in him, prayers, the fellowship with other Christians, you know, again, everything here is temporary. And, you know, we've been reading from the book of first Timothy in church and, you know, this week, actually, it's very appropriate that this verse kind of hits me now. They talked about, you know, when you die, everything that you had on earth does not go with you. And our pastor was talking about, you know, a $70 pen that he wanted to be selfish about keeping. And, you know, at the end of the day, because, you know, it was special to him that someone gave him to a gift, but it's like, well, wait a minute, you know, that's going to make me feel worse inside. And I think, you know, we get hyper fixated and then we start feeling guilt about the earthly things. But then when we start giving in a manner that uh, God gives us approval for, or we, we start being, you know, more godly focused, you know, I think that shifts your thinking into the idea of, you know, this is what's important. And so, you know, absolutely, I agree, you know, with your perspective and can see that, you know, we don't have anything here that's permanent other than how we ourselves believe in God and how we live for him. That's the only thing that becomes permanent, not the possessions, not the Jersey that I paid for this week, you know, not my car, not my house, but you know, what you do to live your guy life for God, that defines the seal of approval. Nothing else does. Well, and this is kind of interesting, but you just shared that story about your pastor and the pen and at re- honestly really resonates with me and it it turns into a whole nother conversation that you and I will have to continue in private because it's pretty interesting you bring that up after some of the things I've been reflecting on all week but we can continue that conversation when we wrap things up here absolutely all right Adam you got anything else for us this week no but again uh we'll hopefully be on tomorrow with Hoosier State happenings you know we got a few things to certainly cover, you know, we'll check in with some, you know, former IU players, some other stuff that's gone on with the fever, nothing too in depth, but again, nothing else for today, certainly that we need to add here. Yep, absolutely. So we'll make sure to get back with you guys tomorrow on that Hoosier State happenings. We also might have a little bit of an update with Jim Ursay and that whale. I'm sure everyone has read a little bit about that, but yep. Um, the Blue Friday previews will be coming back for the regular season. What makes sense to do one this week with uh, the Colts playing on Thursday? And obviously, I missed last week. I'm glad Adam remembered to get at least get an article out for it. But Hoosier State happenings tomorrow. Other than that, we'll be back for another episode of Hoosier State Sports Show next Tuesday. In the meantime, you can find us at our website at Hoosier State Sports, and I'll link all of our social media accounts in the description. But with that. God bless. Have a good week.